Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston, and this is the show that takes a deeper look at the stories that are in the news and a wider view of the world of business and politics here in Ireland and around the world. On today's show, he's the man with a plan to halt Donald Trump's bid for re-election. But who is Ron DeSantis? And the man with no plan at all, it seems. Sam Bankman-Fried is the owner of the collapsed crypto exchange FTX. He's facing multiple charges of company fraud now in the US. So we're going to speak to Financial Times journalist Joshua Oliver about the extraordinary rise and fall of yet another tech messiah. And finally, what's your plan to deal with the new pension regulations that are set to kick in for business just in five short weeks? Pensions expert Moreda Mahoney, head of Wealth Solutions Aon Ireland, will be joining us with some advice of how to prepare. And on this week's show, we've got the brilliant chance for you to win a great prize of a thousand euros gift card with Perk. And that's all thanks to the National Apprenticeship Office. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. But first up today, he was once the pinup boy of the cryptocurrency world. Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX had a valuation of $32 billion at one point. Then, overnight, it had gone bankrupt with tales of missing funds, Chinese walls between businesses and customers trying to find out exactly where their $8 billion had gone. In order to try and make some sense of this incredible story, I'm joined now by Joshua Oliver of the Financial Times, who's been following and indeed writing about this. You're welcome, Joshua. Hi, Mandy. Now, this is just another Netflix series waiting to happen. I sometimes wonder if they set up these tech companies now just to get to Netflix. But who is Sam Bankman-Fried and what is his background, Joshua? You're, you're absolutely right, Mandy. This is a you know, stranger-than-fiction story, but will absolutely be made into one movie, if not many. <laughs> um, Sam Bankman-Fried um, is from California. Um, he was a trader, so he worked on Wall Street. Um, but he got into the cryptocurrency world and he founded two companies that are at the center of this story. Um, one is a trading firm, and it's called Alameda Research, and the other is uh, an exchange, and it's called FTX. Um, and he built up both of these companies. The FTX exchange became one of the biggest players in cryptocurrency. They moved from Hong Kong to the Bahamas, where they had their headquarters in Nassau. And uh, as you said in your introduction, um, just in January, they were valued at $32 billion by a number of the world's biggest investors who would all put their money Uh, behind a company that, you know, within the course of a year has now collapsed. Now, explain to us just a little bit more about the company Almeida and the role that it had in elevating or supporting the price of FTX. So Alameda was a private um, trading firm and it carried on all manner of investment activities. Um, Not a lot was known um, publicly about what they were up to until very recently. Um, But what they were doing, it appears, is they had invested a lot of money into a crypto token called FTT, mm. which is a crypto token that was issued by FTX itself. Um, and so that sounds a bit weird to most people. And that's because it is a bit weird um, for two companies that are owned by the same person to be kind of trading back and forth in this slightly made up token. Um, now, at a time, you know, there was a time, you know, when everything was, you know, going great in crypto land when people were willing to actually pay money for these tokens. And so, you know, everything was going great. 
but the price of the token started to fall, and so that started to create a financial problem for Alameda, which was holding a lot of this uh, of this token, and that was sort of the the first thing that really started to show cracks in um, this you know strange financial engineering between two very closely tied companies. Yeah, it's very interesting you use the the term financial en- engineering. I've heard also it being described as a, a market maker where it it elevates the price, um, and then that kind of presumably is a thing that gets venture capitalists interested in it. But um, their accounting procedures and practices were called into question to to, to an, an amazing degree, particularly by people who were involved in the, the, the post-Enron scandal. And they said that it was the worst case of fraud that they had ever seen. How did the accounts first come out and what did they show? So th- there's various versions of the accounts that have come out. One of the versions was obtained by um, me and my colleagues at the Financial Times, and we reported on it, which was a, a, you know, a copy of the accounts that were prepared in a spreadsheet by Sam Bankman-Fried himself, you know, sitting down and typing it on his computer, and he was showing this around to his investors, uh, you know, potential investors, to try and raise extra money to save the company right on the cusp of bankruptcy. But what it showed was um, they basically they had liabilities, they owed people $9 billion, and they only had just under $1 billion in actual assets that they could shift on the day to try and pay people back. Um, they had other assets, but those were locked up. They weren't things that you could really sell, what we would call illiquid. So they had this huge crunch of a lot of people asking them for money today and not nearly enough you know, assets that they could deliver that cash. And that was ultimately the, the kind of, you know, in jargon, you'd say liquidity crunch um, that led to the company becoming bankrupt. Yeah, so he didn't, they had no liquidity, but his explanation was borderline ridiculous, like an epic tale of the money was just resting in my account. Take us through his explanation for where that $8 billion had gone to. Yeah, so Sam Bankman fried says, you know, one, if not the key problem was this, this slightly mysterious $8 billion. The, the story goes, um, if you believe it, that... Um, Back in the day, there was no bank account for FTX because people didn't want to bank cryptocurrency companies, but they did have a bank account at the other company, Alameda. So people were sending money to a bank account in the name of Alameda that was actually supposed to go to FTX, and then they forgot about it. And so that's the explanation is, oh, we lost now $8 billion. They've just you know, described in the documents as a quote-unquote poorly labeled account um, or, you know, as, as you said, an accident. Um, so that is the supposed explanation. Obviously, a lot of people find that hard to believe. Mm. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, the, the people who are now you know, looking after the company in bankruptcy, who have a great deal of experience in looking at bankruptcies, as you mentioned, Enron, you know, one of the greatest corporate failures, um, you know, in history. And these people are saying, we've never seen a company that had such, you know, weak accounting. Um, the, the phrase that was used was a complete lack of trustworthy financial information. Incredible. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Joshua Oliver of the Financial Times about FTX and its collapse. Uh, Joshua, turning to the other side of this, the culture within the company, um, like extraordinary tales of relationships, substance abuse. Just talk us through some of the ways um, that this company lacked corporate governance or even basic management structures. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's really remarkable about this story is the incredibly small number of people who were at the heart of, you know, what what happened. I mean, this 
this massive cryptocurrency empire, you know, a company worth $32 billion, you know, that was running even more billions of dollars in cryptocurrencies around the world, was really being run by, you know, somewhere between, let's say, four and eight, you know, maybe 10 people, um, most of them either in their kind of late 20s or very early 30s. And, you know, all the key players live together as well as roommates in this very luxurious um, apartment, in a, you know, complex in Nassau with a pool overlooking the beach, you know, exactly as you would imagine it. So you have all these executives, they work together all day, they live together, and they're also, many of them, involved in romantic relationships. You know, at the Financial Times, we don't often write about people's, you know, romantic relationships, but... This, you know, it looks like it was a significant factor in terms of corporate governance. It, sound, it sounds a bit like a frat house as well. That's exactly how uh, people have described it to me. And, uh, you know, other people have said it was like a dorm. You know, the, you know, the, the, the significance of this is the two companies, Alameda and FTX, are supposed to be separate. They're, you know, they're the same owner, but they're supposed to be run separately because one is the place where you trade and the other is doing the trading. And there shouldn't be, you know, close links between them because it's a conflict of interest. But at the same time, you have the people who are running these companies living together. They're friends since childhood or, you know, college roommates. They're all living together and they're involved in romantic relationships. So it, you know, it definitely calls into question whether what was presented to the public as two totally separately run companies were really being run separately. And Joshua, like, how did they become so successful? What were the key drivers of getting to a valuation of, of 32 billion? There's a number of factors. I mean, one thing is just timing. You know, they, they, they came into the market just when cryptocurrencies were taking off in the, you know, the absolute boom that we saw in the last couple of years. So it was just, you know, exactly the right place, right time. Um, the exchange also, you know, was known for functioning pretty well. You know, it was um, one that was, you know, traders found easy to use. It was very sophisticated. It was kind of built for sophisticated traders. Um, and then, you know, another feature was the type of products they offered. You know, cryptocurrency traders wanted very complicated, quite risky derivatives products that were not readily available from kind of regulated venues. But if you're you know, based you know, on an island in the Caribbean, they had more flexibility about what they could offer. And then I th- the other feature is that, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried himself was clearly a very effective salesperson, a very effective frontman and fundraiser. You know, he is this kind of nerdy person. He wears shorts and a t-shirt to business meetings. He plays video games all the time. But people thought, you know, these were all the quirks and eccentricities of an amazing visionary founder. You know, people like to believe these legends in Silicon Valley where they think, you know, maybe this guy's strange, but that becomes part of part of the myth yeah. of why he's so compelling. And so he was really able to sell it to all of these big investors, cryptocurrencies, it's the future, you know, you don't want to get left behind. And, you know, the, this is really embarrassing for a lot of people who were supposed to be some of the world's most sophisticated investors, and they put money into a company that appeared to have, you know, be completely hollow. Yeah, that's a really interesting point there. The cult of the CEO, I'm thinking of uh, Elizabeth Holmes last week getting sentenced to 11 years, Adam Newman with WeWork and even Elon Musk. That sense of, you know, people investing in the person. Do you think that all of these or any of these are going to lead to more scrutiny from investors or even regulators before people start losing their money in their shirt uh, instead of waiting till it's it's gone belly up? 
I would like to say yes, but it, it hasn't happened yet. And this is not, you know, the first startup that with a charismatic founder that has run into trouble, as you mentioned. So, you know, these legends, you know, and you know, mythical figures and the opportunity to kind of get in early on the next big thing is, you know, hard for people to resist when, you know, they've got money to invest. But, you know, maybe we can hope that over time with repeated examples, people will start to be a bit more skeptical. Uh, the other other factor in all this is, uh, you know, the authorities, regulators, you know, people whose job it is to make sure the public, you know, doesn't get hurt um, by these types of blow-ups. And they definitely are looking very closely at FTX. It's absolutely riveted people's attention. And I think that's an area where you will potentially see some progress and in, in people realizing, you know, that, that they just have got to catch up with the state of things in, in cryptocurrency and get on top of it. And maybe one of the reasons is there there doesn't there isn't an awful lot of sympathy kind of uh, coming for for venture capitalists or large corporations who mo- lose money. But if you if you start to see ordinary individuals getting into tech exchanges like this and they start to lose money, maybe it has more implications for the future. But what do you think, if anything, that this has in terms of implications for cryptocurrencies itself? This is pretty significant uh, implications for for cryptocurrencies and and also you know for particular types of companies that deal in in cryptocurrencies. You know this is a massive shock to the confidence of the whole crypto market, and you know you saw that with mm. prices of cryptocurrencies falling. This is a company that you know two three weeks ago people thought was they were you know this is the golden boy, and you know this company was super strong, super solid. So it is a real shock to people, and it it hurts faith in crypto writ large. Um, the other thing is it's you know a company that was very interconnected in all the complicated financial transactions that go on in the cryptocurrency world, and you have seen lots of other companies be affected. You know, these are not names that are as famous, you know, and well known to people as FTX, but mm. within the crypto world, these are you know some pretty big companies that are now you know having real difficulties dealing with losses potentially that they suffered, you know, money they're not going to get back from FTX. How are they going to fill that hole? You know, if one company fails, does the next company fail? Um, and we've not, I don't think, seen all the dominoes fall. That's one of the things that we're watching in the course of the next few weeks. So the contagion may not be over yet. What exactly. of what of Sam Bankman-Fried? I read someplace that somebody referred to him as the next or the J.P. Morgan of cryptocurrencies. What 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 is he facing now, and what could happen to him? Well, I mean, obviously, he's facing a lot of scrutiny, a lot of different investigations. You know, we've seen in um, some of the bankruptcy filings, you know, just an absolute rash. They refer to dozens of different regulators, um, as well as U.S. prosecutors who are looking into what happened um, at FTX. So it's, it's early days. This has only just happened. And, you know, some of these processes take quite a long time to play out. But Everybody is going to be picking over what happened, not just, you know, the people involved in the bankruptcy, but also, you know, law enforcement regulators, um, police in the Bahamas have said they're investigating. So, you know, I I think it will take time for this to play out, but um, Sam is going to be absolutely under the spotlight. And I know they were big advertisers, they had a huge advertising budget, but, uh, and I read last week that many of their employees had fled uh, the Bahamas. Is there some colony of F? Uh, FTX ex-employees someplace that that are kind of licking their wounds or is is the company completely dissolved and everybody's gone now? There are some employees of FTX who are still working at at the company. It is in bankruptcy, but there's still, you know, work to be done as they try and kind of 
get organized, you know, and realize the assets and pay back their creditors. So, you know, there are some people who are still working, trying to do that. It's a difficult job. Many other people have um, certainly headed, you know, headed for the hills long since. Um, and, you know, this is a real shock for a lot of those mm. employees, because as we said, it was a tiny circle of people who were really directing things. And as far as we can tell, the knowledge of the type of problems, difficulties of the company was in financially was restricted to a very small circle of people. So there were lots of other people who, who worked there and who didn't find out until, you know, days before the company was done that they were in any kind of trouble. And so they're completely in shock at this point. They've lost their jobs. They're associated with the tainted brand. And, you know, it came completely out of the blue for some people. So, you know, there, there certainly are um, FTX employees around the world who are still kind of grappling with um, what they've just been through. As with Theranos and WeWork, you know, they tend to be forgotten in, in these debates. And I'm sure this story is set to run for a while yet and a Netflix series coming your way soon. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That was Joshua Oliver of the Financial Times. Joshua, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Now, as I said, on this week's show, we have a brilliant chance for you to win a great prize of €1,000 with thanks to the National Apprenticeships Office because employers right across Ireland are using Generation Apprenticeship to recruit and mould 21st century skills and talent to meet their own industry needs. So you can access employer and gender diversity grants and drive your business even further with Generation Apprenticeship. For more information, log on to apprenticeship.ie. And the prize is a thousand euro prepaid perks credit card. So how do you win? Simply text. The answer to this very simple question, who recently took over at Twitter? Was it A, Elon Musk or B, Mark Zuckerberg? You can text the answer to 53106. That's 53106 and text costs 30 cent. Coming up next, a quick run through the new pension regulations that are set to kick in here for business in January. And we'll be giving you some advice on how to deal with it. That's after the break. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. Now, it's been billed as the biggest ever structural reform to Ireland's state pension regime. The changes that were announced back in September are only weeks away now, but do employers know their obligations? More importantly, do we know exactly what the changes are going to mean for us? We're joined now by Mairead O'Mahony, who's Head of Wealth Solutions at professional services firm Aon Ireland. Mairead, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mandy. Now, Marie, pension reform and the changes that are going to happen at European and national level, they're going to radically alter how we as employees and employers plan their financial future. Can you just remind us of the key changes that are about to take place? Yes. So we're now uh, five weeks out from the deadline uh, for implementation of the IORP2 reform packages, um, which are all around how we govern our pension plans. Um, They're probably the the most significant set of changes to pension regulation in a generation. Mm. Um, And and they really will be all about how the pensions authority are going to supervise the market. The regulations were signed into law back in April 2021, and trustees and employers have been working hard to achieve compliance since that point, but it is quite likely that there are still some working on the the final bits and pieces uh, that are are required to comply with the legislation. Um, At a very high level, IRP2 is designed to improve the levels of governance associated with pension plans, and they are going to result in additional costs 
and administration for trustee groups. And it is the case that some employers are looking at alternative options because the additional costs and governance burdens are just too difficult for them to stomach. Now, it might come to a surprise, as a surprise to many businesses, that they've only got a matter of weeks left, as you said, they're five weeks to achieve that full compliance with the new rules. What do people need to do now to prepare for those changes? Well, I suppose the main thing is to engage, and it is certainly the case that most employers and trustees across the country are engaged and are planning and have made substantive progress towards that deadline. Um, I would say that's the first thing. Make sure there's a plan in place and make as much progress as possible before year end. Um, The Pensions Authority are on record as saying that the regulations will come into effect on 1 January. It seems highly unlikely that the the deadline will change, but I would expect that there would be some um, lenience in terms of those organisations that aren't quite over the line by year end being treated sympathetically as long as there's evidence of a concrete plan in place to right. achieve those to achieve those uh, requirements. So you don't think well what would happen actually if you weren't compliant by the 1st of January? Well, I mean in theory a lot of things could happen, um, um, including fines for the for the trustees, but I would suggest that as long as there's clarity around the plan mm. to achieve compliance for, with IRP2 or clarity around the plan to do something other than comply with IRP2, most likely move to a master trust arrangement or to wind up the existing plan, then the pensions authority would view that favourably. But again, I'm not the pensions authority, so a lot would depend on, on, on how they intend to govern the market. Mm. Now, these changes and the reforms are happening uh, at the same time as the other uh, changes uh, in the the pension landscape. So I'm thinking here of the state pension scheme changes and Mm. the general scheme of the automatic enrolment. Can you just take us through what they mean? Yeah, so I suppose uh, to take the first one first around the flexible retirement age. So the announcement has been made that um, there will be some flexibility for those who wish to work longer than the state retirement age to defer receiving the state pension in, and receive a higher pension when they do decide to, to draw that down. That's a good thing. Um, that recognises that there are lots of people who want to continue to contribute to the economy well beyond traditional age. Um, I would suggest it might be a failure uh, to, or it might be a missed opportunity to uh, not increase the state retirement age beyond 66, given our ageing population. But I would say that this compromise approach definitely helps in terms of reducing our ever-increasing burden on younger workers as our population grows. Uh, for employers, there is, there is going to need to be clarity on what the proposed uh, increases in PRSI contributions to fund this will look like and what the PRSI contribution statement is going to look like. Because um, as we just talked about, the IRP2 regulations are are increasing the burden on employers. Um, There's also going to be auto-enrollment on the cards, and this this, um, additional requirement on the PRSI contribution statements 
it just it, we just need to be clear about the burden that we're placing on employers and and support them with that additional additional ask. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnson, and I'm talking to Mairead O'Mahony, who's Head of Wealth Solutions at professional services firm Aon Ireland. Mairead, I just wanted to pick up on something you said there. Um, you believe that the failure to increase the state retirement age beyond six, 66 is a missed opportunity. Just expand on that. Why do you think that? So, Mandy, we have a, a pension time bomb in this country in that we have uh, five workers for every retiree right now. And within 25 to 30 years, that will have reduced to two to one. Um, and our current system means that pensions are paid out of current exchequer rather than being substantively pre-funded. And so as our population ages, that means that there is a growing burden on those who continue to work. So there is there's a bit of a conundrum there in mm. terms of how the pensions for the future generations are going to be funded. Um, increasing the state retirement age had been proposed as part of the measures to achieve that. Um, like I say, the state retirement age hasn't been increased beyond 66 just now. It has become more flexible to support those who wish to work beyond 66, but it hasn't been increased. And I do feel that might be a missed opportunity in terms of addressing that pensions time bomb. Yeah, and when it comes to the funding issue, that social insurance fund, which uh, pensions are paid from, uh, that's expected mm. to have a deficit of 20 billion by uh, 2071. On the face of it, it just seems that there, there are no proposals which are going to mitigate those costs. But who would pick up the tab? Who pays that bill? Well, you'd like to think that would there would be some increased savings towards that in the years to come. But if not, I mean, ultimately, it's going to be future generations of workers, unfortunately. And Mairead, um, when it comes to all of these reforms and the new pension guidelines, who um, are the biggest winners? Who does it suit best and who's going to lose out in all of this? Well, I suppose that's a really good question. I suppose stepping back, all of all of the... Um, all of the reforms that we're talking about around IRP2, around flexibility of retirement age, around the introduction of auto-enrolment, these are all good things for Irish workers in that it, it serves to improve their chances of financial health in retirement. It serves to improve the chances that they will sustain the quality of life in retirement that, that, that they should be expecting. So ultimately, it should be the Irish people that benefit from these changes. Through IRP2, we should have a more robust system of governance in, a, in the pensions landscape, which should lead to greater trust in the system, better outcomes for current workers saving for their retirement. Auto-enrolment should mean that there will be more of those retirement savers into the future, so therefore fewer people at risk of poverty in retirement. The flexibility of the retirement age should mean that there are greater options for those approaching retirement and and beyond the state pension age in terms of choosing whether they wish to take their pension or continue to contribute in a meaningful way to the economy. So ultimately, these are all good measures for Irish people. And I guess that's an important point to, to bear in mind through through all of this change. One final question, Marie, for you. That issue of auto-enrolment might scare a lot of people. What's going to happen there and how can people opt out? And what's the time frame on the implementation of it? So auto-enrolment is something that's been on the cards for a while in this country. Um, and the announcement made this year is that we should finally see it come to fruition in 2024. Uh, what it will mean is that employees 
fitting a certain set of criteria, earning more than €20,000 and over a certain age, will be automatically enrolled into a pension plan at low levels of contribution matched by the employer and the state. That level of contribution will increase over time per the proposals up to a level um, which would be deemed sufficient to support a reasonable standard of living in retirement. Um, How do employees opt out? There will be mechanisms created for those employees to opt out and then they will be automatically opted back in again after a certain period of time. But to be honest, you know, auto-enrolment is designed to ensure that we dramatically increase the number of people saving for retirement. So the objective would be that there would not be many opt-outs because the system is designed around um, the principles of psychology and behavioral finance in terms of if you make something automatic and it is the easy decision to just remain opted in, then hopefully people will remain opted in and that's a good thing for those employees who will start to save for retirement who previously hadn't done so. Yeah, well our changing demographics um, certainly point towards more difficulties in this area and more people need to to kind of take responsibility for their own pensions and let's hope that that auto-enrolment goes, as you say, some step towards that. But for now we'll have to leave it there. That's Mairead O'Mahony who's Head of Wealth Solutions at professional services firm Aon Ireland. Mairead, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Mandy. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up next, he's been called Donald Trump 2.0. But who is Ron DeSantis? And what are his odds of becoming the next Republican candidate in the presidential race in 2024? This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, Ron DeSantis has been described as Donald Trump with brains and without the drama. His name recognition is already on a par with Trump's when it comes to Republican voters in the US. So, who is the man behind the brand and where does he stand in the race to become the next Republican nominee for the US presidential election? We're joined now from Washington by journalist Bernd DeBoosman Jr., who is a reporter for BBC Digital News in Washington. Bernd, thank you very much for joining us on News Talk today. Thank you very much for having me. Now, so Ron DeSantis, he's one of those names that started to slip into the narrative and even here in Ireland has become a, a household name. So I just wanted to kind of delve back into his past. Can you just tell us a little bit about where he hails from and what his early life was like? Well, he's he's still relatively young, um, you know, on the scale of US politicians. He's just 44. Um, he's from Jacksonville, Florida, um, he, he went on to study history at Yale um, and went to Harvard Law School. Um, in his second year at Harvard, he was also commissioned as an officer in the Navy in what the, the Judge Advocate General's Corps, which is the, the legal branch of the Navy. Um, when he was in the Navy, he, he worked in Guantanamo Bay with uh, detainees there. He also was a legal advisor for the U.S. Navy SEALs uh, during a deployment to Iraq, uh, particularly a busy deployment to Western Iraq, Anbar province. Um, he was discharged from the military. He's still in the, the Navy Reserve. Um, and uh, in in 2012, he was elected to the House of Representatives. And just six years later, he became governor of Florida, where he is now. So he didn't particularly come from a, a wealthy background, as we often see Mary, many American politicians kind of coming through that that very wealthy um, family uh, um, s- system, if you like. But he was a very... He was a really high achiever, wasn't he? When he, whether it was baseball or law and university, you'd put him down as somebody who who did well for himself, would you? I, I would. Um, you know, he's 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 done very well. As I said, he's he's very well educated. Um, by by all accounts, he's he's a very serious, dedicated uh, politician. He's he was a very dedicated lawyer. Um, 
he's I mean he's he is very very accomplished, and I think that. Uh, puts him in good stead with with many American voters. Yeah, and I've listened to a lot of his interviews, and uh, you know he can rattle off uh, data and briefs like no one's business. So in that respect, he already has uh, an advantage over Trump. Uh, what would you say his policies are are driven by? Well, his policies, I, I would, and I've heard him described by by many Republican insiders as you know he's he's. An enthusiastic culture warrior. Um, of course, the U.S. now is in a in a state in which you know the the quote unquote culture wars are something that's kind of a day to day topic of discussion. You know whether that be uh, abortion, whether that be schools. Um, so I, I think you know he's he, he's driven by 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 that. Um, and in that sense, he's it's it's similar to Mr. Trump in a way. But the way he goes about mm engaging in those culture wars is, is very, very different. Um, you know, Mr. Trump in many ways was, you know, about his style and the policy came after. And with Mr. DeSantis, um, you know, he, he also, for example, attacks the media very enthusiastically sometimes, but there is policy goals in mind and he's in his mind and the mind of many of his supporters, he's, he's achieved many of those policy goals, um, which, I think is what kind of elevated him to this national standing where he is now. Mm. And just take us through um, the trajectory of his political career. Where did he start? Where is he at now in terms of securing that nomination from the Republican Party? What took him through that? Well, um, on, on, a, on a national level, what really got him to where he is now is was his stance on COVID. You know, he kind of bucked the national trend in terms of lifting COVID restrictions much, much earlier than most places, um, you know, against the advice of medical professionals and public health experts. Um, and, and that, you know, g- given how polarizing COVID restrictions were, that kind of elevated him to a national standing because he made Florida kind of the the poster child, if you will, of, of lifting those restrictions. Um, you know, initially he was you know, he ordered a statewide lockdown. He set up hundreds of testing centers. But by April 2020, you know, when things were still very, very serious in the U.S., he was already lifting restrictions. Um, and that kind of put him in, in the national spotlight. Um, but to be clear, you know, he, he's he been very coy about whether he actually will run for president. He's, you know, he re- recently told people to, quote unquote, chill out about the conversation about his political future. Um, but at the same time, he hasn't said that he he won't run for president. Um, so I mean that that's still that question is still up in the air. Um, but um, he, he's certainly being discussed as kind of the the heir apparent to um, the the Trump movement, uh, as it were. And what's your sense of it, Burns? Like, how do you think he's viewed within the Republican Party? Do you think they'd see him as a more acceptable face of that sort of conservative end of the Republican Party against someone like Donald Trump? Well, that's the the million dollar question at the moment. Um, certainly in Florida, a lot of polls have him already above uh, Mr. Trump. Um, on a national level, polling numbers are, are quite varied, but um, it, certainly he's he's closing in on Mr. Trump in terms of, of preference for Republican voters. And in some ca- some polls, he's actually exceeded him already. Um, I think many Republican voters are, are at least at the very least thinking about him in terms of you know, he might be someone who can accomplish some of the same policy goals that um, the Republican Party um, has is very explicit about wanting to. But at the same time, he he has a certain demeanor that in many ways people see as more favorable to Trump. Um, 
Mr. Trump, of course, has is bogged down in in multiple legal issues at the moment. Um, and I, I, I think, you know, many re- Republican voters kind of are are noticing that, that, you know, Mr. DeSantis would be um, the the option that doesn't come with that sort of baggage. Um, and, and, you know, that sort of, as you said, the, the drama that Mr. Trump seems to bring with him uh, in, into every conversation. Um, so I think Republican voters are, are you know, I, I've spoken to some Repo- Republican voters who very explicit about that, that, you know, they, they like Mr. Trump, but given everything else that's happening with him, given his demeanor um, and his, his embrace of kind of the, the extreme wing of that party, they see Mr. DeSantis as kind of the viable alternative. Now, let's delve a little bit into those policies that you referred to earlier. Um, I'm just minded of a quote. He said, Florida is where woke goes to die. What's his message to voters on, on wokeness, Bernd? Well, the the wokeness issue is an interesting one um, because I mean it, it encompasses lots of, of of different issues, but it's something that does play well with large parts of the Republican Party. For example, um, you know one of the things he's done is in March 2020 he he signed a bill um, called popularly called the the Don't Say Gay Bill that bans discussion of sexual orientation or gender in primary schools. Um, and, you know, a few years ago, that wouldn't even necessarily have been a, a, a huge issue that was kind of nationally discussed. But, you know, by by embracing that or, um, you know, kind of an, another example, he, you know, sending uh, immigrants detained at the border to to Martha's Vineyard, kind of a, a very liberal enclave in Massachusetts. Um, you know, he's he's kind of inserted himself into the national conversation far beyond Florida. And in in terms of wokeness, I mean, that that's something that um, is so in the public eye at the moment, um, you know, by, by doing that, he's really kind of um, made a name for himself as, as the person who's taken a, a policy oriented approach to kind of attacking what they see, what some Republican voters see as kind of excessive wokeness, you know, an, an excessive, uh, embrace of, of some of these ideas, um, for example, of abortion or the discussion of sexual orientation or the border issue. Um, so I think by taking that sort of approach, he's he's really become kind of the, the face of the anti-woke movement, if you will, um, mm. in, in a way that Mr. Trump has. And Mr. Trump is you know very quick to tweet about things, but he hasn't actually proposed many solutions to these these issues that, that some people are concerned about. Whereas Mr. DeSantis, um, you know, he, by his own account, he, he gets things done um, in terms of, of combating, you know, in terms of the culture wars. Yeah, yeah. And maybe it's because he's a, a former prosecutor and, you know, he's driven by data that, you know, when he actually does make those arguments, he's quite convincing um, on issues which are can be very divisive. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to Bernd DeBoosman Jr. in Washington about Ron DeSantis. Now, I wanted to talk to you about another element of his policies, and you mentioned it there again, um, Bernd, is the, the immigration issue, because just like Trump, he's not adverse to a dog whistle on issues like this, is he? he he's certainly not. Um, and, you know, as, as I mentioned, I mean, Florida isn't on the Mexican border, but he's really inserted himself into that conversation by by the what, what many would call a stunt of flying migrants to uh, liberal enclaves in Massachusetts. 
um, you know, that makes him kind of the culture warrior in chief. And and the border, of course, now is because of record numbers of people at the border. It's it's probably one of the biggest mm. issues that Republican um, voters are are concerned about. Um, so I mean, he he's certainly not not averse to um, you know involving himself in that issue, even if Florida's kind of indirectly involved compared to let's say Texas, uh, which is on the border, of course. So I mean. It, 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 it's one of those things. And also, I mean, he, he like Trump, um, he knows that if if you outrage the media um, and they discuss you a lot, as happened with the migrants issue, um, that kind of boosts your name and help and actually really helps him with with his supporters. Yeah. And of course, one of the reasons why he became, um, you know, so successful and was mentioned by Trump was because he spent a lot of his time on Fox News defending Trump. So what is his relationship with the media like now? Well, um, I mean, he's, as with many uh, Republican politicians in the United States, he's quite quick to uh, attack the, the, you know, what what some see as, as a media that, is, is quite hostile to the Republican Party, for example, CNN, etc. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it's quite contentious, but he certainly knows how to use the media and the, the fact that he's very presentable and well-spoken and he has a certain um, demeanor that's probably closer to what most people imagine a U.S. politician would be. Um, I mean, th- that all plays through the media. So he's, I mean, he attacks the media, but at the same time, he's he's quite savvy in terms of how he he uses it to elevate himself and elevate his policy uh, goals. Well, he certainly is uh, at the age of 44 to get to such prominence is, is quite an achievement in, in America. Just talk to me a little bit about his presence, say, on the stump, because somebody who, uh, like Trump, can just suck all the air for himself with all of his drama might actually just, you know, uh, completely dominate the debate when when things kick in. But what is DeSantis like when he's out on the stump and in crowds? Well, he he certainly knows how to how to work a crowd. And I mean, he and he knows kind of what to say and when to say it that that plays well. For example, I was uh, earlier this year, I was in Florida just after Hurricane Ian, which uh, kind of devastated huge parts of the state. He was, you know, The fact that he got on a stage with President Joe Biden, Mm. a man who he criticizes quite regularly, um, you know, that that showed a lot of people that, you know, he he isn't above kind of reaching across the aisle. Um, And I think especially for for centrist voters or or kind of more um, voters who are, you know, at least willing to to kind of swing either either way, which was quite a large number of voters in the U.S. Um, you know, he 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 has a, a presence and, and a way of speaking and working with whoever he needs to that I think really helps him and puts him in, in good stead with with many with many voters, particularly undecided voters. Um, and you know, the, as I said, I mean, the fact that he he he's kind of. Uh, presidential almost in his demeanor. He, he knows how to shake hands. He's, um, you know, at least publicly, you know, he, he speaks to people. He knows how to speak to people from different backgrounds. Florida is a very diverse place. Um, that's all re- really quite helpful when you're, you know, either in a statewide battle or even more so in a national level battle. Um, and and Mr. Trump, on the other hand, um, you know, his detractors often point out that, you know, he, he doesn't have that demeanor. He he's quick to attack. He's he kind of rambles sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some many of his speeches are are frankly full of demonstrable 
false falsehoods. Um, and and Mr. DeSantis, you know, not that he, you know, I think many politicians say things that are false, but he knows how to present himself and and sound political and sound as a person who would be in that role. Again, coming back to to his his experience within the law. Um, and look, I'm just getting a sense here. He, he's very like Trump in that he's he's still very anti-establishment. He sticks up for those who don't want to either get vaccinated. He doesn't believe necessarily in the climate action agenda. But there is a difference there in, in that he has a suspicion of big companies in his narrative, which which you don't often see from Trump. Um. He he does, and but you know at the same time, um, you know Florida is an extremely business friendly state, and and with the COVID restrictions that we were discussing earlier, I mean his his argument, and in many ways it's been proven to be correct, was that, um, you know, by lifting those restrictions, Florida avoided some of the economic problems that the rest of the state did. So I mean he he is outwardly suspicious of big business, but at the same time he is a business-friendly politician, and Florida is a business-friendly place, mm. um, which, you know, given, you know, kind of the, the Republican economic narrative, that, um, you know, that's that's a big selling point for people. I mean, at the end of the day, most American voters vote with their, their wallet based on the economy rather than many other issues. Um, so, I mean, the, the fact that he's... Um, can portray himself as someone that can help business and and help the average American, um, you know, at the bank, for example, or, you know, with their wallet when they're going shopping for groceries or that their business remained open when other businesses closed. That's all all very, very helpful as well. And finally, um, Bernd, he, he has obviously to the challenge of getting elected. If he does run, it's going to be a very expensive business. Does he have a lot of financial backing behind him? He he does uh, he does and and now you're seeing especially after the recent midterms um, you know very significant donors to the Republican Party they've um, many of them seem to be kind of shifting their focus away from Mr. Trump who um, during the, the midterms many of his candidates uh, his handpicked candidates they didn't perform as well as as he expected um, and you know the, many Republican donors um, you know the ones who can make a difference when it comes to kind of national level politics, um, they're at the very least now considering whether DeSantis would be the, the better option for, for where to put their money. Um, you know, at the end of the day, they, they want to win. And if I think if they see uh, Mr. DeSantis as the kind of the, 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 the most viable option in the, in the subsequent elections, then I think many Republican voters, an increasing number of Republican donors, rather, will kind of shift their focus to to him if, if they see him as kind of the rising star and Mr. Trump as kind of yesterday's guy. OK, well, one way or another, it's a name that we're likely to hear a lot more of in the next couple of years. But for now, we leave it there. That's Bernd de Busman from the BBC's digital section in Washington. Bernd, thank you so much for joining us today on News Talk. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. And now while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. If you want to get in contact with the show, you can email us as always at takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Hugo De Silva on sound. And next week on the show, we'll be letting you know who's won that fantastic prize with thanks to the National Apprenticeship Office. Jonathan McRae's up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record and all of your Sunday newspapers.
So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.